series, which is a non-series. Basically, it's just a, a set of sermons over the next couple months. Uh, and with all the transition going on, with Kyle coming on board and me transitioning out, uh, it just made sense for us to forego a formal sermon series and instead give some people space to preach as they feel led. And, uh, and this morning, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite chapters of Scripture in the Bible. And I actually preached over this text a couple years ago, but I've recently had some fresh insight into the passage. But uh, before we get into the passage today, tell you what it is, uh, I want to tell you a little story. So as a pastor here at Covenant, I get asked to do a lot of different things in the community, especially with the academy, Christian Academy down the hallway over here. And a little while back, I was asked to do a lock-in with a bunch of the youth at the academy. And uh, being who I am, I can't say no, so I said yes. And, and as part of this lock-in, I was asked to give a sermon, okay? Not just a talk, but a sermon. So I was talking with the kids, and I was like, yeah, I'm so excited to be preaching to the kids as they doze off. I do it every week. I'm kind of used to it. And we were talking, and apparently one of the kids said, well, Ben's just probably going to say something about how Jesus is good. And, uh, and I do talk about that with the kids quite a bit. And I started to think to myself, you know, am I a one-trick pony? Do I only have one message to tell? You know, I've got plenty more substance than that, right? So I went throughout my day just reflecting on my own teaching and preaching and whether or not I'd, I'd washed up as a preacher. Midlife crisis, right? Got the beard and everything. So, so I told one of my friends about this, about how much I, of a crisis I was in. And he basically said, you know, dude, that's a good thing. That's what you want to be known for. And, and I realized it absolutely is. I want to be known as somebody who only has one message, Christ and him crucified. Because Christ is so beautifully, so satisfying, so perfect that to preach anything else falls short. Now, mind you, we do preach a lot of sermons, a different variety of sermons here from the pulpit. But it all comes down to Jesus. That's our mission, to know Jesus and make him known. That everything it boils down to is the story of redemption, of God loving us in Jesus Christ. That's the story. That's what it's all about. That's the end game. And the passage I want to talk about this morning is one where the story of redemption literally gets thrown on trial. And it's the story of Paul on Mars Hill. So if you have your copy of, of God's Word, please turn with me to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. And just to set up the scene for you, the Apostle Paul is in Athens, and he's waiting for his friends Timothy and Silas to join him so that they can start doing some ministry in Athens. And Paul finds himself in the center of this great big city, and some interesting things kind of happen. So before we get into this passage, uh, will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the people in this room. I thank you so much for this church. I thank you so much for the different awesome things that you're doing in and through this body, Lord. It's such a blessing. And this morning, I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to the various truths that you want us to, to learn and embrace and internalize and practice, Lord. We give all the glory to you in Christ's name. Amen. So Acts chapter 17, verse 16. When Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, in Athens... He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So just so you're aware, Athens was the center of culture in that day. If you wanted to hear the latest, greatest thing in the culture, you would go to Athens. They had the best market, the best schools, the best music, the best products, the best food. 
This is probably similar to a place like New York City, City or even uh, Los Angeles in some ways. But what's interesting is that in Greek life, wherever you would go, you would be confronted with all different kinds of religious and philosophical ideas. You couldn't escape these conversations or go a day without hearing something about the gods or seeing idols wherever you went. Religion was everywhere in Greek life. Zeus, Athena, Artemis, Apollo. You have all these gods that the Greeks would cling to and worship, and it was pervasive within the culture. You couldn't get away from it. You couldn't escape it. So Paul's right here in the middle of Athens. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas. And the text says that his spirit was provoked when he sees all these idols. Now, generally, when we hear the word provoke, we generally think, dude got mad. But really, that Greek word literally means called to action. So when Paul, this great Christian evangelist, sees all these idols around him, he needs to do something about it. And what's his response? Next verse. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. So Paul's gut reaction to seeing a city so depraved and lost is to reason with it. Now to us, this seems like a reasonable response. But put yourself in Paul's shoes for a second and pretend like you're in a city in a foreign land. You see that they're worshiping other gods and you're the religious minority for once in your life. It's a pretty daunting experience, isn't it? To be confronted with a worldview so completely different than your own and so pervasive, it seems absolutely inescapable. But Paul's empowered by the Holy Spirit to go and engage with the people in the city. He doesn't do so like an Old Testament prophet. He doesn't go crazy. He doesn't take out a blowhorn. Instead, he reasons with them. He engages them where they're at. And the text says he goes to two places, to the synagogue and the marketplace. Now, Paul's in a relatively safe spot in the synagogue. They mostly hate him, but they can deal with him. That's his home turf. It's kind of his sweet spot. He knows how to evangelize the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. But to engage with the folks in the marketplace, that's a different story. You see, the marketplace is interesting because there's really nothing like it. We can't really compare it to anything. So I'll just say that the marketplace was like a mall mixed with a bank, mixed with an art gallery, mixed with some stages for TED Talks. That's the best way to describe it. This is the place where people would go when they weren't working. It's the the hangout spot, the chill spot. People would come, present their ideas, go buy some artwork, go buy a Cinnabon, and go talk about it. It was a great place. They didn't have Cinnabons back there. I'm just kidding. So Paul's caught up in the marketplace. He's conversing with a bunch of folks about the gospel. And the text goes on to elaborate some of the interesting interactions he has there in the marketplace. It says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting at the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. A little bit of humor on the part of Luke right there. 
So Paul's engaging with some of these philosophers, and he's getting some mixed results, frankly. Some people think he's an airhead, and some people think he's got some good ideas. He's interesting. But what you have to understand is that this is a place that was obsessed with new ideas, and they were being discussed and debated all the time in the marketplace. It was a culture obsessed with the new, as Luke tells us. And my guess is that Athens was probably a lot like our culture, always looking for the latest and greatest thing. And I think what Luke's trying to tell us here is that they were obsessed with new things because they had heard all the old ideas all the time. They grew up worshiping gods who didn't exist and believing things that didn't really satisfy their souls. That's why these folks met all the time. They wanted something real and truthful and tangible and meaningful because everything else they were eating up left them hungry and sad in every single way. So when they hear Paul speaking of something new, they're thinking, could this be the idea that we're waiting for? Now here's something I didn't realize until I started prepping for this sermon a few weeks ago. In the Greek, when it says that they took him, it actually means that they arrested him. So Paul, he's sharing his ideas. They want to know more. So they arrest him, and they take him to this place called the Areopagus. It's their love language to arrest and hear things. Now, the Areopagus is sometimes known as Mars Hill. And this place functioned as a meeting place for the high court. And they would usually judge questions related to the public good and public practice. Now, chances are the people in the marketplace arrested Paul and took him to this high court in order to judge the truthfulness, the veracity of his beliefs. In other words, they wanted to put Christianity on trial. But even more so, this is Paul's best chance to present Jesus to a multitude of folks who are just waiting for a religious idea that will satisfy their souls. I want you to notice something, all right? In the span of only just a few verses, Paul walks into Athens, he sees some idols, he talks to some people, and then he gets arrested slash invited to share his new ideas. Now part of this is that the Spirit of God is making a way for Paul to to engage with the upper crust of Greek society. But I think there's something to be said about the manner of Paul's evangelism. He's chatting. He's humbly chatting with anyone who will listen. He's not beating people over over their heads with an Old Testament scroll. He's just having a conversation with the folks. What's cool about this is that they listen and they want to hear more. Of course, they basically arrest him, but it's all in the name of intellectual curiosity. So that's a win in my book. But here's the moment of truth for Paul. All these conversations are culminating into this big moment where he gets to defend the Christian faith and preach the gospel publicly to all who will hear. 1722, it says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So he starts by giving him a compliment. He butters them up a little bit. He says, hey guys, y'all are pretty religious. That's awesome. He meets them where they're at. And the people of Athens are like, yeah, you're right. We are pretty religious. We got things going on. And Paul goes on to say, For as I walked around and carefully looked at all your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So Paul, at first he butters him up. 
And then he says, you guys don't know what you're talking about. This gets real, real quick, okay? But it's not really an insult when you understand the background of this passage right here. Because a lot of scholars will say that the Greeks set up these, these, uh, these altars to the unknown gods just to kind of cover, cover their bases as a safety precaution. They wanted to cover their bases just in case they missed one of the gods. And that's true. But I think it kind of misses out on the richness of the story. It misses the point of what's going on here. This idea of an unknown God goes back to a story in Greek mythology. And the story goes that there was this plague was spreading all across the land, especially in Athens. And the city elders sacrificed animals to every single God they could think of in order to stop the plague. But the plague wouldn't stop. So the city elders, who recognized their ignorance as a last resort, prayed to an unknown God, begging him for mercy. And the plague stopped. And after this happened, people thought, you know, this unknown God must be more powerful and more benevolent than any other God that we have. So altars were constructed all around the city in honor of this unknown God. Now, Paul may or may not know the story, but the Spirit lets him connect the dots, and people are listening now. And what Paul says is, have I got a story for you? That's what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. He's, he's quoting a Greek poet right there. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine image is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So Paul doesn't mess around, right? He gets straight into preaching the gospel. And through all of this, he confronts all of the ideas of the Greeks in just a few words. He scorns the idea that God is somehow an idol to be worshipped. He contends that there was a time when the universe was not, that it was created by one all-powerful God. That this all-powerful God is the father of humankind. And Paul even uses quotes from a couple poets just to reinforce and strengthen his argument. And he also presents the idea, the scandalous idea, that God is somehow within our grasp. And he desires to be known. Now some of these folks are probably filled with joy because this is an attractive philosophy at works. But some of them are thinking, this dude's nuts. But here's where he loses most people. It says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So up to this point, I think people are digging what Paul is selling. They like it because it makes sense. 
He puts forth a cohesive view of the world that answers all the questions they've been asking for thousands of years. And Paul says, look, this unknown God that you've been worshiping in ignorance, he's been gracious to you forever. But you're going to be judged by the one who he raised from the dead. That's a tough pill to swallow. Because I think most people throughout history have believed in some sort of higher power. But when it comes to Jesus, that's where you lose people. Like Jesus says, the the very fact that I'm here isn't peaceful. I'm going to turn brother against brother. He says, I haven't come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And even in our world today, you mention that Jesus is divine. People shut you out. Many walk away, but some don't. Check out what Paul said, or what the text says next. It says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear from you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, a, member, a, a judge of the council. Also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. So Paul, he preaches the gospel. Some folks embrace it and others reject it. And some just need a little more convincing. That's how it always is when you talk about the Christian faith. Jesus said that himself. Sometimes the good news will fall on hard ground. Sometimes it's going to dry out. And sometimes it'll take root and flourish. And you see that play out in the text here. So after this, Paul, he goes on his merry way. Now, this is important because the people on Mars Hill may have thought that Christianity was a threat. If they did, they would have kept him locked up. But instead, they let him go, meaning that Christianity has a spot in the marketplace of ideas. This is a win for the gospel, and Paul can continue preaching the good news as he was called to do. I just want to draw a couple conclusions about this text and, and what it means to us as Christian people. The story of God, it's the greatest story ever told. There is a reason that the folks in the marketplace listened to the apostle. He told a great story that explained the world in a way that they never heard before. It was a story that captivated him, them. So much so, they wanted everyone else to hear about it as well. And that story is the gospel. For those of us who have been Christians for a long time, it's easy for the gospel to become trite and narrow and rehearsed. Yes, Jesus came to earth. Yes, he died. Yes, he rose again. Yeah, he's coming back. And if you believe in him, you get to go to heaven. Yay. Sometimes we're like that, right? But isn't the Christian story so much richer than that? Is that the God of the universe is restoring and redeeming human beings and all of creation back to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. God, through Christ, is making everything new. And he's inviting us to be participants in his project of restoring and redeeming all things. This is broader and it's deeper than just personal salvation. It's an all-encompassing story where the earth is restored, the universe is made right, and our souls can be saved to be with Jesus for eternity. It's a story that's more inspiring, more full of freedom, more encompassing and and encouraging than all the other stories out there. It's comprehensive. It applies to all areas of our world and all areas of our lives. 
It's a grand story that makes sense when matched up against all the other stories of this world. Which leads me to my next point. We need to connect the stories of our culture with the story of God. When you look at Paul's reaction to the idols in Athens, there's a few things that you don't see. You don't see Paul breaking out the blowhorn and the picket signs. This is a man who wants to understand culture, what it needs, then meet those needs with the fulfilling story of God in Christ. In our culture today, there's a lot of stories out there. Maybe we don't worship Zeus or Athena, but we attach our lives to other idols. Like we've said the past couple months, we think that money or sex or a promotion will satisfy our souls. We can fill our hearts and our minds and our bodies with all the idolatry that we can fathom, and yet its end is death and destruction and emptiness. In our culture today, People believe in an unknown God. Sometimes he goes by the name of fate or the universe or karma, a higher being, forces beyond our explanation or simply energy. A lot of folks recognize that there's something bigger than themselves that guides and directs this universe, and they don't quite have a name for it. Like those folks on some, like some of those folks on Mars Hill. Some are content just leaving the unknown God unknown. But others need to know the one whom they believe in, yet don't know personally. We need to be that voice in our society, in our world that says, hey, all that stuff that you're trying to achieve, all that stuff that you believe about the world will never satisfy your soul. The most satisfying story that you can tie your life into is the story of God and Christ. And really, the only way we'll be able to preach the good news to a culture searching for answers is if we know the story and we're faithful to it. Has the gospel, has it become your story? Do you tell the story of the gospel with your life? Do you believe wholeheartedly in the truth of the gospel? Augustine once said that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Paul knew this to be true. He had compassion and love for the Athenians just as the gospel demands. Our lives, they've got to be characterized by love and a desire to see folks come to know Jesus in a deeper way. But it all depends on how faithfully we tell the story and live it out. I love this quote from Stanley Hauerwas. He says, For Christians and the church, their most important task is nothing less than to be a community capable of hearing the story of God we find in Scripture and living in a manner that is faithful to that story, which can be judged by the kind of people it develops. A community capable of forming people with virtues sufficient to witness to God's truth in the world. The question is, do we know the story well enough? Do we know it deeply enough? Does it move us enough? Does it compel us enough to go ahead and share it with others? Paul believed that the story of God in Christ was the most compelling narrative to share. It offers truth, hope, and abundance, true abundant life. We know this because we've been enveloped into this narrative of God in Christ. 
The question is, will we help connect others with this great story? And part of the story, a huge part of this story, is that our Savior gave his life so that we could have life. In fact, that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. We celebrate our faith in Jesus Christ and the victory over death that he put forth by dying on the cross. It's a strange thing to celebrate, but it's meaningful. And our Lord told us to remember his death every time we get together. And we do that when we take communion. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come to the front. And in a few moments, I invite you to come and take communion. Take a piece of bread symbolizing, symbolizing the body of Christ, which was broken for you. Dip it into the cup, symbolizing the blood of Christ that was shed for you. Remember the story of redemption that God has told us in Scripture. Remember how and when you were redeemed. Remember how far Christ has taken you in your spiritual walk. Remember all that he's done, he is doing and will do in your life. Let this be a time of encouraging you to faithfully tell the story of a God who loves us, who pursues us, and who satisfies our souls. Because it's a better story where Jesus wins in the the end. Where the king of our hearts sits on the throne and we get to live with him forever. That's the best story on earth.